morning. Well, it's been, I think, two months now since I preached. Um, the springtime gets extremely busy, and so I took that month off. We had guest speakers come in. It was a blessing for that. And so as I got back in this, um, I remembered why I took two months off. The text that we're covering today is... Some of you will see this as very clear and easy, and some of you may have struggled with it in the past like I have. So pray, as I pray, that um, God would give us grace and God would give me clarity um, that this would come out and that it would be helpful um, and, and it would glorify Him. So let's pray. Father, I thank You, Lord. God, I thank You for just being here. Um, for this congregation that you've that you've brought together and the joy that we feel when we come together, God, it's such a blessing. I thank you for our visitors who are here, and I pray, Lord, that um, that you would minister to them and that you would minister to to our members, God, through your Word. I pray, God, that uh, Lord, your Holy Spirit would deliver this message and that it would be clear and that it would work in the hearts, and it would open the eyes of those that are here, God, that we would better understand your word, that we would better understand your message to us, that we could better serve you, and that we could better seek the lost. God, it's it's just a pleasure and an honor to stand here, and I pray, God, that you would help me, God, that you would just help me to give that honor to your word. In Jesus' name. I pray. Amen. So we're going to be in the second chapter of James, if you would turn there. The The first part of the second chapter was a lot dealing with um, just how we look at people and how we shouldn't... Um, have preconceived ideas and things like that. And he kind of, James now, he kind of changes gears a little bit here. And we're going to start in verse 14, and we're going to go through the end of the chapter. Um, This portion of the second chapter has been widely misused in Christianity. And I um, was a big part of that. I wasn't a preacher at the time, but I received the teachings of this. I think I, I received it wrong um, many times. Um, and so that's why I think it's hard, not necessarily hard, but it's just there's there's such a misconception of what James is teaching here. And I, I, I want to do, do honor to it in bringing it all together in the context of of the entire Word of God. I want to give the whole counsel of God here today. So here's the deal. The last part of the second chapter of James, legalists love it. This is their go-to verses. This is their go-to section of Scripture. The Roman Catholics appealed to, especially to verse 24, but to this whole section in response to sola fide. Faith alone, that's what the Reformation, that started the Reformation. Their response at the Council of Trent was, no, look at verse 24, and it says, you see then that a man is justified by works 
and not by faith only. So we have to get the proper context here of what is going on. Um, and, and there's many today, there's many people who claim Christianity who will misuse this text. And so I don't, but here's what I don't want to do. This is where my struggle was as I was preparing this. I don't want to spend all my time reconciling this to what Paul taught in Romans and Galatians because I want to spend the time in what James was actually doing as well. Okay, so there's two things here that's my goal. So hopefully I can get this done. Um, By God's grace, I can get this done and there's no other way. But let's just look at verse 14. Let's start out here. James chapter 2, verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? So that's the beginning. That's the, that's the, the question that, is, that James is bringing forth here is, can, basically, can faith alone save him? But I want you to notice a couple things in this verse. Extremely important to notice. First off, he says, if someone says he has faith but does not work, have works. You notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say if someone has faith but does not have works. Okay? So it's a claim. There's many people today that claim to have faith and they do not have works. And, that, and what we're going to see is that faith is dead. And what we get into a little bit is the understanding of the terminology of what kind of faith are we talking about because there's more than one kind of faith. Okay, and we're going to see that as we go forward. But he says, does, if anyone says he has faith. And the second thing he's, he says, he, he does not say, if one of you. He said, if someone. And I think that's important to understand here because James is writing to Christians. He's writing this book to believers. Most of them probably Hebrew descent, but it is believers. It's, it's people who have followed Christ. And so he's not saying if one of you believers says he has faith, but has not works, can faith save him? He's saying if someone. Now that doesn't mean it's not someone in this congregation. It doesn't mean someone that he's reading this. But what he, I think the distinction that needs to be made there is, If you have true faith, and that's what we're going to see in this whole message, if you have true faith, you will have works. Okay, that's going to be the point that we're going to make. But we got to see, we want to flesh all this out. Okay, but when you read that just on the surface level and you take this by itself, which is what's usually done when it's taken out of context, it gets confusing. It looks like it's a, it's a works, almost a works-based salvation, a works-based justification. It almost seems like a contradiction of what Paul is teaching in the book of Romans, right? And it's used, that, that's how it's taught in legalism um, today. That's how the Roman, the Roman Catholics, that's, what, that's how they did it. Um, and they like to single out a few verses here and then build an entire doctrine on that. But to do that is very dangerous because you're disregarding the rest of Scripture. So we want to try to reconcile this to the entirety of the Bible. Um, so I think what we got to do is we kind of have to get a grasp 
of the time. But I don't even know that it's the time because I think we should be able to understand what was going on because we see the same thing today. We know that Paul dealt with much slander, don't we? He, he said it in Romans. He said it, I mean, he made it clear that he was dealing with um, people that would take what he said and twist it, right? In Romans 3, 8, he said that he was, he was being slandered, that people were saying, he said we should do more evil so that we could have more grace. That's what people were saying about Paul. They were taking his awesome grace-based salvation method or message and using it as an excuse to go do more sin. Does any does that does anybody know anybody like that? Has anybody seen that today? Has anybody been a part of that today? It happens, right? It's happening in our very culture, so we don't have to really struggle to understand what was going on. Man hasn't changed that much in 2,000 years. It's still this old, condemned, depraved wretch of a sinner that will take a really good message and turn it around that we could indulge in the things that we want to indulge in. That's what Paul was dealing with. In Romans 6.1, you, you can see Paul anticipating that people will say, we can continue in sin that grace may abound. What does he say? He says, God forbid. So Paul was dealing with that, and we know that James was probably dealing with the same time. It's the same, or the same thing. And so there's no doubt James here is even dealing with people who were misusing the teachings of Paul. Paul had went through and he had ministered to all these people. He's given his message. He had wrote the letters. And now James is seeing an uprising of this cheap grace, as we would call it, or easy believism, as we might hear it said. Um, so you keep that in mind as you read through these verses. James is dealing with, I think, what we are dealing with in our culture today. And I think if we get that context, it makes more sense to what he's saying. Um, because there, here's the deal. There's many today, many, that have professed the name of Christ and are far from Him. And you can find it in all different sides of the ditch. I mean, both sides of the road in the ditch. Okay, we, we, I was at Bricktown Friday night and we were preaching the gospel. And I talked to a group of, I don't know, probably high school age kids. And they all went to church, and none of them could tell me the gospel. What is the gospel? Um, it was like this. I was like, well, what's the gospel? It's a music? That's, that was literally the answer. There's a music. It's a, it's a type of music. I said, well, there is a type of music that is about the gospel. They call it gospel music, but that's not the gospel. And one of them said the Bible. Okay, we're getting closer. They did not know the gospel. But they had made professions to be Christians when I started that conversation. And that is a common occurrence if you ever do any kind of street evangelism. Or if you just minister to your friends and family. Um, you're going to come across that a lot. There is a very 
easy believism. I've said this prayer, and so now I'm going to heaven, and I can go live however I want because I'm saved by grace. And I think that's exactly what James is dealing with. On the other side of the ditch, you'll find, I think James is dealing with this as well, you'll find people who can intellectually tell you just about anything you want to know about the Bible. You'll find people who are theologically even correct, and they can tell you the doctrines of grace, but when it comes to seeing a work in their lives, there's still a lacking. There's still a lack of love. A.W. Pink said this, Their minds are instructed, but their hearts are not reached, nor their lives transformed. So sometimes we'll see people who just like to look smart, and this is the avenue that they chose to do it. Um, and that's the same. James is dealing with both people here. He's going to address both of them, and it comes down to what kind of faith do you really have? Look at verse 15 and 16. He says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? What good is that? So he's taking a comparison here of our spiritual faith and he's putting it into something that we can tangibly understand. He's given us an example of something that we all can can get our minds wrapped around. What good is that? It's a, it's a rhetorical question. I think we all know that that does no good. It shows the worthlessness of empty talk apart from deeds. It doesn't matter how well... And how loving you sound when you say, peace be with you, be warmed and filled, right? If you don't give them a coat and a piece of bread, it does absolutely no good. And I would even argue that it does more harm than good. If you tell somebody who's actually hungry or who's actually freezing and you tell them all these good things, but you do nothing to help them, you're actually harming them more than good because the it gets, you know, there's a there's a level of hope that comes with that and then a, nothing in return, right? And so it doesn't matter how well you say it, it's worthless. You can and it and it comes to the same thing that James is talking about here. You can say you have charity in your heart. You can say you have love in your heart. But if you do that and there's no result, there's no evidence, there's nothing that comes out of that, then you've just used, misused the word charity. That's not charity. If you, if, if you feel sorry for people but you don't do anything about them, you don't have charity towards them. You don't have love towards them, right? You have some kind of uh, pride. You feel sorry for them because they're not as good as you or they're not getting what you do, but you're not actually loving them. So verse 17, he says, So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So you can say you have faith in your heart, but without works, you've just used, you've just misused the word faith the same as you would have misused the word charity. He's making a comparison here of a physical thing to a spiritual, which they tie together completely, because if the faith is true in your heart, then that verse 15 and 16 will actually flow from that. You, will, you won't say be warmed and filled. You'll give them a blanket 
and something to eat, right? You'll help them. You'll strive to help them. So a dead faith is a false faith. This is the first description. This is kind of the way we're going to see James describe um, this false profession, these false confessors of Christ. We're going to see their faith described three different ways. This is the first one. It gives it, it it's it's dead. It's not a true trust in the Lord and Savior. It is an acknowledgement that He is there. We'll see more about that in just a second. But this faith is dead. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. I used to love to quote that one. See, you have, you, you can't have faith unless you have works. I had it backwards. You can't have works unless you have faith. That's the real, that's the real point of this passage. And he's saying that in order to, in order to demonstrate this faith, you're going to have works. That's what's going to show that the faith is true. But here's the thing. Who are we showing the faith to? He says, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Is this proving somehow to God? Or is this somehow earning some sort of justification by our works? No, it's not what he's talking about at all. He's saying, show me who you are. If you claim to have faith in Jesus Christ, show it to me. How are you going to do that without any kind of works? How are you going to show me? How, how are you going to show me that you're any different than those kids up there that can't say the gospel? How are you going to show me you're any different than the Roman Catholics who claim to know Christ but have no no true saving faith. You can't show that without works. And so James says, I will show you my faith by my works. But it's all about showing, this, this is an evidence not to God, it's an evidence to ourselves and to those others around them. And so verse 19, he's going to talk about the acknowledgement here. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. All right, and so so obviously just believing in God doesn't save you. True. That is a fact. Because the demons, there's no doubt they acknowledge the existence of God. They even had conversations with God, right? With Jesus. They had conversations. It is not the time. Don't throw us in the pit. Don't let us wander to and fro. Put us in that herd of swine. They weren't denying Christ. They knew He was there. And they knew who He was. He He even shows that the demons even get some correct theology here. You believe that God is one. You do well. You can have correct theology. You can under, you can properly articulate that, yes, I believe in one God. I believe He's the Creator. I believe He existed in three persons. You can say all of that stuff, so can the demons. So we see this, but here's the thing. Demonstrating a high intellectual understanding or a high intellectual um, knowledge of God does not save you. 
So what is it? It's useless. It's useless. How much good do the demons get out of knowing who God is? Zero. They get none. They have fallen. He has sent them no redeemer. And they will be cast into the lake of fire. So how much good does mankind, does a human, does a man or a woman get just by knowing who God is? None. We will receive no good for that. Matter of fact, this morning Paul was talking about in Romans 1, the evidence is there. There's no man. There's no such thing as atheists. There is enough evidence there that every man knows God is real. And they suppress the truth in righteousness. Why? Because they love their sin. So how much good does it do to know God? None. It does no good. And I think we see this. I think we see this a lot today. I think we have a lot of people who admit there is a God. Some of them can articulate many truths about Him. But it's it's interesting. You can talk to people and you can just sometimes tell there is no true love for Christ. And you can usually see that in the lack of love that they have for people. Does that describe you? This morning, have you examined yourself to determine, am I one of those people? I can I can articulate many theological truths, but I don't have a love for God's people. Up there Friday night, there was a young man um, that Brady Brewer. If you don't know, we go out. Brady Brewer spoke was well, just a couple weeks ago, um, but he does a lot of street evangelism, and I met him up there at Bricktown and. Um, there was a guy, Brady drives a truck during the day, and this guy he met just drives a truck for a different vendor. And they run in, they wind up at a lot of the same places. They got to talking, and uh, this guy's a believer, and he's just kind of got a lot of zeal for Christ. And I was talking to him up there, and man, he's just excited. He doesn't have a whole lot of theolo- theological truth. If I talk to him about the hypostatic union, he's not going to know what I'm talking about. Matter of fact, if we really got into a very deep discussion about the Trinity, I think it would probably get deep for him real fast. But I could see a love for Christ in him because he saw these people and he's he's handing out gospel tracts and he's trying to talk to them. And he's just he's he was so encouraging to Brady and he was so encouraging to me when we get done preaching he was like man that's just really good man I, I haven't heard a lot about this repentance and conviction and you could just see the love for people for god's people and for the lost in him i'll take that over deep theology any day of the week now i'm not saying we shouldn't study deep theology because i think as we do as believers we develop even more of a love for god and even a more of a love for his people And more of an appreciation for what he did. But there is such a dead coldness sometimes in theology. In some of of the people. And that's what I worry about when you see that. When you see this dead coldness in theology. I think people have gotten a hold of certain amount of truth. But they haven't actually let the truth penetrate into their hearts. And we don't want to be that. We don't want to be that. And we don't even want to give a resemblance of that. We want to give a resemblance. We want to give a, a proof 
a confirmation of Jesus' love for us by our love for other people. Look at verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? I mean, here's where, here's where he talks about, um, do, do you want to know it? And if you're, if you're sitting there today and it's like, ah, we got to have these works. It's all about what I do. And you're not hearing this message. I think it's exactly what James is saying. You don't, you don't want to hear it, you foolish person. And so Piper described these three, the three ways in this passage of this false, false face. He, he described them this way. Verse 17, he said it was dead. Verse 19, he said even the demons believe and tremble, so he called it devilish. So this false faith or this, this unsaving faith is dead, it's devilish, and verse 20, it's useless. There is a faith, there is a type of belief that we see, and it's useless. I think that's clear. But verse 21, we get to see it really get confusing. (laughs) He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Okay, so he's referring back to um, Genesis 22 when he offered um, Isaac up on the altar. And if you don't know that, uh, I would encourage you to go back and and read it. Um, What a glorious testimony of the grace of God in that whole story. Uh, We see a picture of the gospel in that. But he's saying, he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works? But then... In, in, in verse 23, he actually quotes Genesis 15, which says, Abraham believed the Lord, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So it almost even appears here that James is contradicting himself. But turn back with me to Genesis 15, and let's read, let's read that, and so that we can get this straight in our minds. So Genesis 15, verse 1, he says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Is there anything in there? When you read verses 1 through 6... Did you see Abraham do any work for righteousness? No. He did nothing. He was just there. He was not believing the promise or he, or he hadn't received the promise. He was, he was thinking that his heir was going to be his servant. He had no children. 
And God says, no, you're going to have more children than you can count in the stars. And we know, we know, and I think, and I believe Abraham knew that this was actually a prophecy of Christ. The many nations that would be saved through Abraham, the many children that would be through Abraham was those that would come through Christ. So Abraham here is receiving the gospel and he, what does it say? He believed God, he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, which happened first, this or when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Well, we know he didn't have a son yet here. He thought his heir was going to be his servant. So later, that promise, who was going to come through Isaac, was given to Abraham. Now, so, but now we see James saying, was not Abraham justified by works? When he offered Isaac on the altar. So it's confusing at the surface level. And this is where, it, I mean, it's, it's getting into some, some deep understanding here. It wasn't, it wasn't justification. It wasn't his salvation that was given there on that altar. That was given back in, in Genesis 15. He was justified when he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So what happened later when they offered Isaac on the altar? Well, look back at 21. James 21, 2.21. Was Abraham our father justified by works? So what's the answer? What is this talking about? It's talking about the confirmation of Abraham's Faith. 20, in Genesis 22.1, it says that God tested Abraham. That's the beginning of that chapter. When he's going to offer Isaac up on the altar, it says God tested Abraham. Now, then you ask the question, why was God testing him? Was it for God's sake? Does God need to test you to know if you believe in him? No. No, God is all-knowing. Right? He is the one who placed that faith in you in the beginning. I mean, you cannot even, and that's what this morning in the, in the equipping hour, as we were going over the effectual calling, that's what we learned. God is the one who wills in you. God is the one who places that faith. You can see it in Ephesians 2. Even that faith is a gift from God. He doesn't need to test you to see how you're going to react. That's how I test people. If I want to find out what somebody's like, I can test them because I don't know what's in their heart, right? God does. So it's not for his sake that he was testing Abraham. So what was the purpose? What was the purpose of him testing Abraham? It was not for God's sake, but it was for, remember, I'll show you my faith by my works. It's for you. It's for me. So he was testing Abraham for the sake of Abraham. Who else was there? Who else was there on that mountain when he had Isaac on the altar? Isaac was there. Is it possible that he was testing Abraham's faith for the sake of Isaac? So that Isaac could see the faith walked out. So that Isaac, as a young man, or teenager at the time probably maybe not even quite about 12 years old to see his father did you think isaac ever doubted that his father loved him there is no doubt in my mind that isaac knew his father loved him this was the heir this was the promise 
Abraham showed and demonstrated his love for Isaac. So when he put Isaac on that altar, it wasn't because Isaac thought he was mad at him. It wasn't because he thought that he was in trouble or just didn't want him around or any. No, he knew the purpose of that was to glorify God. And so Isaac saw Abraham's faith walked out. And then ultimately, did my mic go out? Ultimately, it's for our sakes as well, right? We get to see that true faith that Abraham demonstrated now. Train always comes at just the right time. So the testing of faith was not for God's sake, but it was for Abraham's sake. It was for Isaac's sake. It was for all of our sake. Right? And so when we now, as we look at ourselves, when God tests us, when there's things put forward in front of us, it's not for God's sake. God knows your heart. God knows your heart more than you do, for sure. Is there anybody in here who's saved that has ever doubted their salvation? I would probably suggest... Everybody, I know I have. But if you're truly saved, does God doubt your salvation? Absolutely not. So he puts things in our path to strengthen our faith. That's what he did for Abraham. And that's part of what we're seeing here in James. So look at verse 24. If you you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So in light of all that that we've seen now, in light of all that that I've said, we can see that what James is dealing with here are people who are false professing faith. They're claiming to have faith with no evidence of it. They're not following true faith as laid out by Paul in Galatians 5.6. And I think Galatians 5.6, turn over there. This is the key. Um, I really, I really believe this. This is the key to understanding and reconciling all of this. If you turn to Galatians, chapter five, verse six, and it says, "For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only listen to this: only faith." Working through love. So a true faith is actually working. There is no, and that's what Paul is saying here. You can be circumcised, you can be uncircumcised. You can be baptized, you can be unbaptized. You can, whatever, fill in the blank. You can go to church every Sunday. That was one I heard a lot Friday night. Well, I need to go to church. Well, that won't do you much good until you find Christ. Maybe you'll find Him there. But church is not going to save you. There will be people in that day that say, Lord, Lord, and they have sat in a church pew for 50 years, and He will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Why? Because their faith was not working in love. True faith. Saving faith. The faith that Christ gives us, the faith that God
God plants in our heart works through love. And so you can't have one without the other. And that's, I think that's the point that James is making here. You cannot have the first without the second. So working through love is the completion of faith. It is the evidence of that which is not seen. It's not to add to justification. It's not to receive justification, but it is to demonstrate justification. And in verse 25, it says, In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So he kind of goes to another witness here, another point. But the question here is, did Rahab have to prove her faith to God or to men? When she was justified by faith, or, or she was she was saved from the destruction of that city by her faith, she demonstrated it to the men who were in the doing the work of God by acting out that faith. It wasn't for God's sake, it was for those men's sake and for her own, right? It wasn't for God, it was to men. God had already put the seed of faith in her, but she had to demonstrate that in order for her to be physically saved from the destruction of the city. Does that make sense? Is this is this kind of coming together? And then look at verse 26. He says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Pink summed it up like this. He said, A breathless carcass and a worthless faith are alike useless as unto all the ends of natural and spiritual life. If you have faith and have not works, it is just as good as being a dead carcass laying there. A body without a spirit is just rotting. And your faith, if it has not works, is just as good as that. And so having said all that, I don't want to leave it just there. Um, I hope that, I hope that we can see this. If you have questions, we can talk about it later as far as reconciling those things. But the truth is we want to get down to really what James was dealing with. James wasn't dealing with trying to reconcile himself to Paul. James was dealing with what are you going to do with this? What what does your faith look like? And that's what I want to finish here with. Um, so, so you ask yourself the question, do you have this faith that's working through love? Does your faith generate love? Does your faith cause you to do good things for other people, to do good things for the glory of God. That's the essence of the Christian walk, isn't it? Isn't that what we're here for, is to apply this word? So let's just look at a few areas that you might consider this in. Gentlemen, men, married men specifically, if you claim to have faith in Christ... But you do not love your wife. That is a dead faith. And take it another step further. You can claim to love your wife. And that's a dead love unless you're serving her. Unless you're working for her. Unless you're honoring her. Right? That's what we're called to do, men. We're called to love our wife. And that is not just saying I love you. That is working. 
That is serving them. That is finding the things that they enjoy and doing it for them. Complimenting them. Providing their needs, both spiritually and physically. Financially. Right? Women, wives, it's the same. This is not a one-way street. You can say you have faith. You can say you love Christ. But you don't love your husband. And you don't serve your husband you don't submit to him, then that's a dead faith. That's no faith in Christ. A faith in Christ will teach you to serve your husband, just as it will teach your husband to serve you. That's what a true saving faith is. How about young people? We have some young people in here. Wouldn't it apply to you that you would honor your parents, honor your mother and father, honor your elders? Maybe it's your teachers. Maybe it's your grandparents. You can claim to be a Christian and without that in your life, it's dead. And it also comes down to this, and this goes to all of us. How do you treat people? Uh, Parents, how do you treat your children? Do you treat them with respect? Do you treat them with the love that God has given you for them? But do you want to know the most concerning thing about this? Do you know who will be the first to notice our lack of works? Do you want to know who will be the first to notice our dead faith? Paul said it this morning. He saw Christianity. He was an agnostic before he was saved. And he saw Christianity as a religion of hypocrisy. Is that how he said it? It's the world. It's the unbelievers. They'll be the first to notice it. They'll, they will sit like a leopard stalking prey. And as soon as, as soon as they get the chance, they will pounce on your, your dead works. They will pounce on your dead faith. They'll toy with it and then they'll devour it. They are waiting. They're lurching, waiting for us to mess up. And that is why we must be above reproach. This includes denying sinful pleasures. But it also requires solid, everyday stewardship of God's grace. That's what we're, that's what we're talking about here. That means if you do, if you have business with people, you want to be the guy known as the guy that always does it up front and honest. You want to be the one that keeps it all up in front. You want to treat people right. You're going to conduct your life that, on a daily basis that brings God glory. I've, I've been thinking about this. Um, we, we live in a time when I see um, there's not as much of a desire or a drive to do quality work. Has anybody ever experienced that? Listen, Christians, you can't be that. You have got to do your job, whatever it is, to the glory of God. When you're at your job, and it does not matter what it is, consider when you're doing a job that you're doing it for Jesus. You're doing it as if Jesus was going to be the one to come in and inspect your work. Will that change the way you do it? It does me. 
it comes across every once in a while when I'm trying to take a shortcut or I'm trying to cut the corner. And I think, what if, what if Jesus was coming? And I was cleaning my house and he was coming over to visit. Would I do that? Would I do it like this? No. No, I'd make it spick and span, right? What if I'm serving at McDonald's or some fast food restaurant and Jesus was the customer on the other side of the counter? Would I still act the way I do? Do it all for the glory of God. And I promise you this, the world will notice that too. They may not say anything about it. They won't advertise it the way they do when you mess up. And it'll take much more time and much more patience for anything to show up out of this. But they will notice. They will notice your hard work. They will notice your efforts to serve God's people. They will notice your efforts to serve the lost and to seek the lost. And at some point, it might just soften a heart enough to where you can share the gospel with them. Somebody may notice it enough to say, give me an answer of that hope that lies within you. Isn't that what we want? It's not a real common question that somebody comes up and says, give me an answer of the hope that lies within you. But I can promise you this, if you have no evidence of the hope that lies within you in your walk, in your daily life, nobody's ever going to ask it. Live your life. When you wake up in the morning, think, I want to live my life today so that somebody would go, man, there's just something different about you. So I'll leave you with this question. Are you living your life as a constant demonstration of your faith, working through love, or are you living your life talking about it but work lacking in the works to prove it. Let us turn now to Christ. Here's the thing. All of that, all of that I said, we can't do it on our own, right? We turn to Christ and to the Holy Spirit and we'll ask Him to help us demonstrate our faith in a mighty way, in a way into the world that people would notice, that people would want to know more about what it is that you have, and then we can proclaim the glorious grace of Christ. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I, God, I, I just feel so inadequate. Lord, both to articulate the Scriptures and reconcile difficult passages, and also to stand and to preach about demonstrating your love when I know I fell so far short of that. But God, just as I just said, I pray that you, I pray your Holy Spirit would give me the strength and the desire, the knowledge to take that and to, to show your love through my faith, through the faith that you have given me, that it would be demonstrated to the world. God, I thank you for that. I thank you and I pray that you would do that. And I pray that you would do it in everyone here who is a believer. God, and I pray now that if there's anyone here who is living one of those false faiths, who has a, an appearance of God, 
but denied the power, who has not truly repented, who has not truly been born again, God, I pray that you would reach into their heart. You would plant this seed of truth and that you would cause them to be born again, that you would cause them to see Christ. Oh, that you would open their eyes, God, and see the glorious gospel. And Lord, I thank you and I pray for our fellowship afterwards. I thank you for the just the relationships we're building here. And, and Lord, I pray, God, that we would always have a love for one another. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.